0: Good evening. We're going to look this time at John chapter 4 and the incident about the, uh, the woman of Samaria, who the Lord met at, at the well. So, let's John chapter 4, let's uh, start there, verse 4. And the Lord Jesus must needs go through Samaria. So, he comes to a city of Samaria called Sychar, that's probably Shechem, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, Sat thus by the well. The RV says he sat as he was, implying almost he collapsed there. It was about the sixth hour. There comes a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink, for his disciples were gone away into the city to buy food. Now, let's just hold it there and make a really obvious point, or it seems obvious to me. And that is that we see there a a very detailed picture, really, a realistic picture of the Lord's humanity. That this was no God pretending to be man, according to, to the Trinitarian idea. This was the Son of God, also Son of Man, really feeling genuine human feelings. He came to a well, he was exhausted, and he sat there being wearied with his journey, and he so sat; It's as if, it's a strange Greek uh, Greek phrase there, but the idea is as if a little snapshot is taken and we're in that verbal snapshot enabled to see the Lord Jesus just as he was, collapsed there by by this well and desperately wanting to drink. And a Samaritan woman comes by and he asks her. And there's one other little window, I think, into his humanity here. It says that the disciples weren't with him. They'd gone into the city into the town, to buy food. There's a couple of things that arise out of that. For one thing, they were not carrying food with them, for some reason. Secondly, why was he on his own? You remember that time when he got up a great while before day and got away from them all, and went away and, and prayed on his own. It seems to me that he just wanted to be alone. So he said to to them, like, guys, you go to the city. No, I'll be fine. I'll be good on my own. You go to the city uh, and you buy the food. I'll just stay here. But aren't you tired? You look exhausted. You're going to pass out? No, no, I'll be good. That's so imaginable. That, to, to me, is so, so realistic. That has the, the ring of credibility to it. That really and truly... He wanted to be alone. And wouldn't you and I want to be alone? Haven't you felt like that when you've been surrounded by people? I just want to go for a walk on my own. Just just let me be. And then, very true to life, it didn't work out. A woman comes up and starts, like, ribbing him about, Hey, you're Jewish, and I'm Samaritan. Uh, you know how it is. You just want to be on your own. Uh, and, I don't know, the phone goes, or your mobile rings, or, or, or I don't know. Something happens, somebody rushes into your life, and you can't be alone as you planned. It's so realistic. And just in passing, if you've got verse 6 open there, you might like to underline the sixth hour. Because it seems to me that in John's Gospel, he's actually using Roman time and not not Jewish time. The other reference to the sixth hour in John is talking about Roman time, 6 a.m., It seems to me that this is the same. It must be, I think. 6 a.m. in the morning. So they had walked through the night, and it was pretty hot in the daytime. That maybe wasn't unrealistic. They walked through the night, and the Lord was exhausted. Now, you see there a man at the very limit, at the very limit. And... Really, he could have justified himself by saying, "Well, I, I'm doing all this in God's service, I'm exhausted. I'm going to preach to one more person." And some Samaritan woman would that they don't they like, don't even talk to us, but not him. He went the extra mile. Really and truly, he went always that extra mile. And when we get almost through, we justify our lack of witness very often by saying, "Well, I'm doing quite enough. I can go any further." I, I, I can't do any more. I've got to look after myself. But he, his whole spirit was, was quite different. Anyway, so he, he goes on. And um, this uh, woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, this is verse 9, asks drink of me, which am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It was not only that she was a Samaritan, she was a woman. And he was willing to talk to her as a woman, and also she was a Samaritan. Now, in the same way as the Lord really turned on their head social expectation, the gospel is no less radical and and unusual in our society today. 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me to drink... You would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water, or springing, springing water. That's the idea. The woman says unto him, 11, Sir, or Lord, just note that, Lord, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then have you that living water? Seems to me that this woman was, was real smart. She picked up that the Lord Jesus was talking to her on a kind of symbolic level when he, he says, um, you should ask me to drink and I'll give you living water. Because uh, I think she answers him in his own terms when she says, yeah, okay, but the well's deep and you don't have anything to, uh, to draw the water with. You don't have like a bucket with you, do you? How are you going to, you, you, great idea, but how are you going to do it? And I think she understood that he wasn't just talking about literal water, that he was talking about the springing water. Well, that's a, a fairly common Jewish idea, going right back to the, the water that came out of the, of the rock and the water that God provided in the wilderness. Spring up, oh well. You remember that passage in, in Numbers. It's the very same idea. As if she's saying, yeah, okay, so you can give this Life, this life-giving water, this springing water, this water maybe uh, that's spoken of in Ezekiel's prophecies of the future kingdom, that there would come springing water out of Jerusalem, out of the temple, and give life to the world. Okay, you reckon you've got that? But you don't have a bucket, sir. (laughs) It's very deep. It's hard to, where are you going to get life from to give to me? Where? Are you capable of doing this? You don't have a bucket. And she then says, verse 12, Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his sons and his cattle? Well, notice in the dialogues that, that we read here with this woman, that... She has a great spiritual perception, but then she can't quite hold it. She, she wants to get caught up in this argument between the Jews and the Samaritans. She raises this controversial issue with him. She makes a fine point, and then she, she goes off on, on a tangent. And she says, well, you know, you know our, our father, Samaritans, our father, Jacob, like Jacob was our father. You don't think he is, do you, you Jews? But he was. And he gave us this well, and you know what? He himself drank here, and his sons, and his cattle. Old Testament actually doesn't say anything about that. But she obviously... uh, This is part of the Samaritan tradition, and she's sort of push, push, pushing it in there. But Jesus doesn't rise to that. He says in uh, 13, he ignores her provocation. And he says, everyone that drinks of this water in this well of Jacob shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up unto eternal life. Now this is definitely the language of Ezekiel, talking about how in Messiah's kingdom there will be a a spring in Jerusalem in the temple that will give living water, that will Bring life to the world. It's picked up again in in the Revelation. And Jesus says, you right now, if you believe and if you drink the water that I give you, this will happen for you right now. Now that doesn't mean that the kingdom of God is totally here and now. But I think it means that there are parallels between our situation right now and the future kingdom. It's not all jam tomorrow. It's not all good time coming. It's right now, you and I, tonight, in in, in this world, in this life, that there's something common between our lives and experience now, and that which shall be in God's kingdom. And that's a wonderful thing, that we in this life can be the well that gives eternal life to other people. Now, you notice what he says. He, he doesn't just say, well, if you want eternal life, you know what, I can give it to you. Ma'am, you can drink the water that I'm going to give you, and you'll have eternal life. It's not quite so, uh, how to say, primitive. He says, if you drink this water that I can give you, and I think he means if you believe, like he says later on in John 6, if you eat of the bread that I give you, which is me, uh, you will never, never hunger again. I think what he means is, if you really accept this, yeah, the eternal life that's in you will be like a well. Now, a well gives water to people, right? That's the idea of it. So he says, yeah, you will have the eternal life, but it's a well deep inside you that will come out of you to give eternal life to other people. So he's saying, Receiving eternal life, or having life from me, is not a a selfish thing, it's not a personal thing. You have it, but you have it so that you can give it to other people. If you're going to have eternal life, it's so that you can give it to other people. It's so that it will be a well inside you that bubbles up out of you and gives the life to others. I remember well, over 25 years ago now, being asked, why do you want to be baptized? And I said, well, because I want to live forever. I want to have eternal life. And the brethren sort of smiled and said, yeah, yeah that's, that's the idea. And, I, you know, that's fair enough. Yeah, why do you want to be baptized? Why do you want to, why, you want to believe in the Lord Jesus? Well, because I want to live forever. And that's Okay. That's okay, as far as it goes, but it is not actually the full story. And it's not actually a very good answer. It's an immature answer. None of us lives or dies, not even eternally, to ourselves. The whole idea is not that I want eternal life, so I therefore shall believe and I shall uh, read the Bible and understand the, the, the message and the idea, get baptized, be good got to be, um, and live forever. You know, the, the cynic would say, well, that's selfish. And it kind of is. There's a bigger picture that's got to be here. Yes, I do want to live forever. And yes, that is what God promises us. And that's a wonderful thing. But it's not all about you or me living forever ourselves. The idea is that that hope of eternal life that is inside us is like a well that keeps bubbling and springs out of us and gives gives the life to other people. And let's not fail to see the wonderful and profound really teaching here that within you and within me there is the eternal life of other people. That means that other people can live forever because of you and me. And we might say, well, God's the Saviour through Jesus. God will save who He wants, as He wants, how He wants, and that's true. And yet, and it's difficult under the sort of tyranny, I guess, of words to get it, get the balance right, and what I, what I mean. But other people's eternity, to some extent, depends upon you and me. And if we don't do our part, they will not have eternal life, because. Their eternal life is inside you and me, bubbling away, or it should be, as a well that comes out of the most innermost parts of our being and gives them eternal life. And so, he says in 14, it it will be inside him, in the innermost part of his being. And uh, later on in John, the Lord repeats this idea that, that this water is like a well from the innermost part of our being. So, in our witness, our witness, our giving of eternity to other people, is from the innermost part of our being. It is not advertising a denomination, doing PR work for some sort of church or denomination that, that we happen to be involved with. It's something that comes deeply from inside you and me. And it is that personal approach to other people that is the only ultimate personal witness. It comes from deep, deep, deep inside. And we have the power to give eternal life by God's grace. I mean, it's his life that he's given to us that we are good to give to others, uh, to other people. And yet, I live in an apartment block. I don't know 46 apartments, of which ours is number nine. And not all those people really know that I believe, or what I believe. Now, imagine the Lord comes back. Oh, that Duncan fella, yeah, in apartment number nine, he had eternal life, he knew all this? Why, well, he didn't tell me about it. You know, sometimes when it really hits you like that, that we will live forever, and that we have this hope of eternity inside us to give to others, the whole idea of, of witness becomes absolutely vital to us. We think, wow, well, I'm going to do the shops, I must tell people, I'm gonna have my hair cut. Well, I better tell the hairdresser, or I, 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 I meet some some guy at work or some. I, I must say something. And why don't we? Why, for the most extroverted of us, is it uh, like do the brakes come on and we like have to take a deep breath to make that witness? Why is it so difficult for us? Why are we so shy and? some sort of withdrawal about it and I submit it's because we maybe don't believe or feel as we should do that we have in prospect the eternal life that we will live forever you and me tonight that we will live forever in God's kingdom now if we believe that we can't be passive to that we can't somehow be indifferent to that it's not possible if that is true, if we believe this, you you must say something to the guy next to you because you have the eternal life in you as a fountain to give to other people. I think it's getting practical. It's very good if we can just decide that every day I would at least try to share the gospel with at least one person. One practical suggestion that I have is to print out just some little calling cards, the sort of thing that uh, you can print out on your computer, just with maybe your your name and contact details, and a little very basic statement, one line about the gospel, and maybe a a web address, and just have them in your pocket. And make sure that you, you, I don't mean to litter the environment, but that you drop one, or give one to somebody, or leave one somewhere every day, because we should feel inside us this well of water bubbling up, bubbling over, and as I say, that witness that we make, the essential witness, it comes from deep, deep inside us. That's where it comes from. It's not, as I say, a case of a publicity exercise for the denomination or, or anything like that. And John fifteen, uh, sorry, John four, getting back to, to to the text, verse fifteen. The woman says, "Sir, again, Lord." Uh, give me this water that i thirst not neither come all the way hither to draw so she says okay so give me that water and the lord doesn't he does not just say okay here you are here's your water i give you everlasting life you know what i mean we're all going to die we don't have immortal soul but he means i can give you the uh, the essence of the life that is eternal he doesn't say that he doesn't say oh you want you, you want the water from me sure ma'am here you are What does he say? 16. Eyes down. 16. Jesus said unto her, Go call your husband and come back. She wants the eternal life. And so Jesus says, Okay, go go and call your husband and come back. Why doesn't he say, Oh, you want the water that I can give you? Okay, ma'am, here you are. Why? Because... He has just said there, in in verse 14, that the water, the everlasting life, the, the bubbling life, is a well inside us. And I said that a well, by its whole nature, gives water to other people. And so, he doesn't say, oh, you want eternal life? Here you are. He says, oh, you want eternal life? You want the water in you? Well, it's a well. And a well, by its nature, gives the water to somebody else. So, Bring your husband and come back here. You see, that's why he said it. You've got to now go and tell other people. Because you want the water? Well, it's a well. And you can have a well inside you, girl. So go and and bring other people. And I I said that this woman has a tendency towards self-justification, which we all have. And so the woman answered and said... I have no husband. And Jesus said, You well said, I have no husband. Now, we're reading here in in English or any language, really, through the mask of translation. Now, in Greek and Hebrew, as in quite a lot of languages today, there really isn't a difference between the word for man, as in a mature adult male, and husband, because basically every man Mature adult male was married. The idea of singleness was not really common. And so he says, go and call your husband or your man. She could take it either way and come here. And the woman says, I don't have a man or a husband. And Jesus said, yeah, well done. Well said, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and he whom you now have, this is verse 18, is not your husband. Now all the time it's just playing on this word man or husband. She said, uh, oh, I've got to go and bring my man, my husband, I don't have one. Jesus could have, could have said, liar. You have a fella, you're living with a fella. What do you mean, you, you told me you don't have a, a man? <laughs> of course you do. I think that's how we would be, uh, have been inclined to, to respond to her. <clears throat> but in this, you see the Lord's grace, really wonderful grace, and the desire to be positive. He chooses, He chooses to understand this word that could mean man or could mean husband as meaning husband in this context. He says, Well, well said. You said well. I have no man. I'll understand that as husband. You do have a man. You do have a fella. And you're living with him. But yes, he's not a husband. You're just living together. Now, let's just pause there. This was gross. This was not a turning a blind eye. The Lord was not turning a blind eye to this woman. To her moral failures. But he was trying to build a bridge with her, a bridge to her. And it's in this that I, I feel a lot, of, a lot of religious people, particularly dare I said Protestants, really mess up. The idea is, oh, you're in the wrong. Are you doing this? Well, let me, let me just put you right, brother or sister, uh, and, and straight away head-on confrontation. Now, no one's justifying living together. Don't get me wrong. My observation is the way that the Lord was so positive about what she said. I don't have a man, a husband. Oh, okay, I'll take that to mean you don't have a husband. Well, well said. You know, it's building a bridge to her. And the point of building that bridge was not to say, Yeah, don't worry, anything goes around here, my friend. It's all okay. Don't worry about it. No. No. The whole point of the exercise was to actually convict her of her sin. And he goes on to say that, uh, well, you've had five men husbands, however you want to take it. So this woman was not, it seems to me, a particularly, uh, hadn't lived a particularly stable life. Now, she could have been, according to some people, like a, I guess a small town, small time kind of kind of hooker, basically. But I, maybe not. I I don't think so. I get the impression that it'd been man after man after man, and in those days, I mean, this was not common. I I mean, really, married life was far more stable than what it is today. So she she hadn't done the right thing anyway. And uh, she says, "Wow, 19. Well, she doesn't actually say "wow." But, basically, uh, she said, 19, Sir, Lord, I perceive that you are a prophet. So, she doesn't argue. She said, wow, you're like, yeah, all right, you're right. And you must be of God because you know my sins. But I said earlier that she had a tendency to to lose the intensity and to get sidetracked by this silly old Jew Samaritan argument. So she's convicted by the Lord of her sin, and she says, yep, you're right, you're the prophet. You're speaking the truth. That's right. Uh, Verse 20, Then, But our fathers worshipped in this mountain. She means Gerizim. But you Jews, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she tries to slip out of the whole issue about being convicted of her sin by a man who's a prophet from God. By raising this issue... That, you know, the the Samaritans worshipped God on Mount Gerizim, and they built a temple there. They said that this is where Abraham offered Isaac, etc. So she, she tries to get out of the point-blank confrontation with her sin by the Son of God, by getting off on, on some total irrelevancy about which mountain, which hill, basically, you're supposed to worship God on and isn't that just how we are? how many times have you read scripture maybe reflected on your sins at broken a bread or, or some point in life that has confronted you with your sinfulness and you accept it but then we're off we're off on some irrelevancy, off with some argument, some issue, some little bit of theology, some bit of culture, some bit of history, some other argument, and we we slip away from the moment. It's not a case of whatever the opposite of carpe diem is. seize the moment. We lose the moment. And religiosity is a classic excuse, as if she's saying, well, actually, you're right, I'm a sinner and all that, but you know what, at least I worship God on the right mountain, not not like you lot, you Jews. And Jesus, in his lovely way, does not sort of get involved in a tit-for-tat, I'm right, you're wrong argument, although he could have done, he could have said, well, dear, no, (laughs) actually, no, you know, Jerusalem, etc., this is God's footstool and the temple and that. But no, he doesn't. He could have quoted a whole mass of Old Testament scripture and absolutely proved her wrong. That you guys and your idea about worshipping God on Mount Gerizim, this is a load of nonsense. No, dear, it's Jerusalem. But he doesn't. He takes a higher level. He looks at the essence of the issue and he says very well-known words, 21. Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what. We Jews worship that which we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour comes, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such does the Father seek to be his worshippers. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So he's saying... The whole issue about geography, which hill you're going to go build your temple on and worship God on, this is this is uh, absolute irrelevancy ultimately because God is spirit and you must worship him in spirit and truth and it doesn't matter where. So he, he lifts as he loves to do. He lifts the issue higher. He gets to the essence and doesn't get caught up with the, uh, the external. And I, I, for one, love him and admire him for, for that. But you notice that although he doesn't uh, rise to her provocation, he does, in a very nice way, make an important point, and that is, in verse 22, that salvation is of the Jews. The Saviour is actually from the Jews. He was referring to himself there. So he doesn't leave the issues totally unaddressed in this Jew-Samaritan argument. And uh, it's a very beautiful way that he's done this. And time and again, I mean, we meet this in family life, in in ecclesial life, in in our life at work and with neighbours, etc. Provocation. Those people who who will provoke, and we all provoke each other. Um, And it's just beautiful the way the Lord does this, that he gets to the essence, and he lifts the argument higher, way right over the head of all this petty literalism and yet although he doesn't rise to the provocation yet he still makes essential points and that's important so the woman said 25 i know that messiah comes which is called christ and when he is come he will declare unto us all things and jesus says i that speak unto you am he And so the uh, disciples came twenty-seven, and they were surprised that he's there talking with, with a woman. A man talking to a woman, particularly when they were alone, it was particularly when she's got a, a man, a fellow, a husband, however you want to take the word, uh, it was quite unusual. And they said, but but, it said, but no one said to him twenty-seven, what do you seek? What are you looking for? And I think that, I'm not quite sure how to interpret that, but here is my suggestion. They didn't say to Jesus, what are you looking for? Because it was obvious he was looking for something. So, what happened? They'd been away, in a town, buying their food, and they came back, and there's this woman talking to the Lord Jesus, but they would not say to him Jesus what are you looking for because it was obvious I think from his body language engaged as he was in conversation with this woman that he was searching for something so you imagine these men walking down the track closer and closer to the well and think oh there's two people there oh man it's a woman well, not man but you know like oh hang it, it's a woman uh, he's talking with a woman he get closer and they would have been struck by his body language, that he was seeking something. Now, this is a beautiful picture. If my reading of the whole thing is right, which it may not be, but that in our very body language, in our contact with people, there should be a seeking. It should be evident that we are seeking something. Not another member of a denomination, but that we are seeking God's glory in that person, for that person. Anyway, when, when they come, 28, the woman left her water pot and went away into the city. She left her water pot. Now, women had a real bad ride in first century Palestine. And it's been suggested that probably the only thing she actually owned and possessed as her very own was something like a water pot. And she left it. And why does it say she left it and ran off into the city? Well, it could simply be. She wanted to be as quick as possible. So you can't run that quick with a water pot, so she left the thing. Now, water pots aren't that cheap. And uh, even if she made it herself, it's a lot of work. So it was something valuable to her, but she left it. And it reminds, reminds us, doesn't it, of the blind man, who when he hears that Jesus is passing by, he leaves his garment which is the only thing that the poor guy had, and ran after Jesus. The idea is, of course, that when we are convicted by him, when we really meet him, nothing else matters. Now, nothing is ma- matters, even the dearest thing that, that we have. For, for the blind man, it was his garment. For the woman, it was her water pot. This is mine. This is mine. Nothing else but this is mine, but even that I will give. Now, that is, I think, the classic example to us of how we should despise materialism. And we live in an increasingly fanatically material world where the idea of ownership, that this is mine and it is not yours, is just got absolutely crazy. And yet, the encounter that we have with the Lord means that for us we should leave that, that that now does not become important for us. Now, of course, she she probably came back and with the men and then picked up the water pot. Maybe she didn't. I don't know. But probably she did. And probably the healed blind man got his garment back. Maybe he didn't. But the point is, it was not important anymore. So, she goes into the city, 28, and said to the men, and note that she goes to the guys, come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Now, what had Jesus told the woman that she'd done? He had reminded her of her sins with men. So when she says, oh, guys, I found a man who told me everything I'd ever done, she means he told me everything I ever did wrong. And that's why she goes to the men. I mean, I can understand the point of view that says this was small town small-time hooker. Maybe not. But all the same, she'd sinned with men. And she goes to the men and says, "I found a man who told me all that I ever did, i.e., he told me all my sins." In other words, she told them effectively, of her repentance. That she had been convicted of her sin, she left her water pump, she was desperate now to take the good news to them. And she says to them, end of verse 29, RV, can this be the Christ? Or is not this the Christ? I prefer the RV, could this be the Christ? I wondered if she was 100% convicted when she walked away from Jesus or ran away from Jesus to the men. I wondered, it seems to me there was some amount of doubt there. She said in 25, well, I know that when Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said, yeah, well, that's me. And so she would have gone away thinking, yeah, I reckon that's him. But there's still an element of doubt there. I mean, she does not fall at his feet and say, you are, you are Christ. You are the Messiah. She doesn't say that. So she comes to the men and tells them that she's been convicted of her sin by a prophet. Could this be the Christ? It seems to me that in the process of preaching, of her talking to those men, asking the question of them in that way, she herself became 100% convicted. And when we ask, well, why preach? Why witness to people? One of the reasons, and one of many, but one of the reasons is that we ourselves are the more convicted of our beliefs and of our faith. So 30, they went out of the city and came to him. They were persuaded by a well-known, it seems to me, sinful woman who recognized that she had been convicted of her sin. Now, this world is tired, and I mean tired, of slick, nicely dressed evangelists with their pretty wife and their perfectly obedient kids and all the rest of it, who show themselves the knight in shining armor, who has never done anything wrong and who sets the wonderful example, etc., etc. But I don't think I really don't think that is the witness that persuades. What persuades is if people see in us, in the very texture of our personality and our our being, that unique mixture of, on one hand, humility, recognition of sin, of weakness, of failure, and on the other hand, an absolute conviction that I have met the Son of God. That this is for real, that this is him, in his beauty and in his perfection, who convicted me of my sin. Now, if those two things, truth on one side, the hope of salvation, and on the other hand, a genuine recognition of our own fallibility, our own failure, our own sins, if those two things are somehow mixed together within us, that is the witness that that will persuade. And these people went out there and they believed in Jesus because of what she said. It says in verse 39, From that city many of the Samaritans believed on him. Don't forget he's a Jew. And he was obviously a Jew because she could tell he was a Jew when she first met him. Uh, He was, Jesus was, I would say, very, very Jewish um, she said, no, why do you, a Jew, ask water for me, a Samaritan? But uh, anyway, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed on him, Jesus the Jew, and as their Messiah. And that would have been very difficult for Samaritans. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all things that ever I did. And we said that Jesus told her all her sins. So it was because of that testimony, the word of the woman, that people believed the word of the Son of God. Now, <laughs> I know that God will save how he wishes, and he does, as he likes, whatever method he, he wishes, but the point is that God chooses to work through us. He saved those Samaritans because of the word of the woman. It's like it's written later on in the New Testament that Paul so preached, and so the Corinthians believed. We may say, "Well, if I don't do my part, oh, God will find another way. Some other brother, or sister will come along and make the witness." And that, in the bigger, ultimate picture of things, in the final equilibrium, maybe, but maybe not. It really could be that God is saying, "I'm going to work through you." I, as Paul says to the Thessalonians, God has entrusted us with the gospel. He said, "Look, I'm giving this to you." Duncan, Joe, whoever you are. I'm giving this to you. Now take it. And like the talents. Now you go away and trade with them. I'm not going to be there looking over your shoulder every five minutes. You go away and, and trade with them. I have entrusted you with this. And it could be that if we do not share that message with other people, they will not hear it. I mean, we are, after all, the body of Christ in this world. The Lord Jesus has no other... Fingers, hands, arms, legs in this world apart from you and me. We are him to this world. And so the disciples say in verse 32, sorry, Jesus says to the disciples in verse 32, I've got food to eat that you don't know about. Now don't forget, we suggest that the Lord had walked through the night. He pretty well collapsed at the well. The whole incident starts with a snapshot, as, as it were, of him exhausted at the well, absolutely desperate for something to drink, really at the limit of human exhaustion, really needing something to eat and drink. And now he doesn't need it at all. He's suddenly revived. Why? I've got food to eat that you don't understand. The food was obviously his experience with that woman. And the disciples dumbly say, well, has someone else like, brought him something to eat? And Jesus says, no. My meat, my food, verse 34, is to do the will of him that sent me and to accomplish his work and to finish his work, accomplish his work. It's the same word when the Lord Jesus dies. And you remember he says, it is finished. Here he says... Well, I met this woman, preached to her, converted her, and now a load of other people. That's my food, because this was doing and finishing the work of God. What's the connection then? There obviously is a connection between what he says here, in verse 34, and when he dies on the cross, he says, it is finished. Well, it seems to me that we cannot separate the cross from his life. But the essence... Of him there on the cross was seen in his life. In the same way as I don't think our lives are made up of the occasional heroic interaction with with, with God or, or Jesus, uh, maybe going to breaking a bread meeting once a week or whatever. But it's a spirit of life, and the apparently heroic acts which we may or may not be called to make are not actually out of uh, out of. Uh, Order with the rest of our our daily lives. The same essential spirit is to be seen there. And what that means is that, effectively, every moment of life is a call to (coughs) heroism, to heroic action in a spiritual sense. And so when the Lord said, it is finished, I think that he had the same idea. I have brought people to salvation. Which people? It was us. It was us. Not that we then existed, but he had us clearly in mind. And you notice in verse 33 that the disciples say, well did anyone bring him to eat anything to eat? You see the contrast between the woman, who when Jesus starts talking about water and wells and bubbling living water, she, she tags onto him and she talks back to him on his level. And these men, the disciples, who totally don't get it when he talks about, oh, I've got some food that you don't know about. Like, oh, did anyone, some other guys come and bring you some food or something? Like, duh, how slow are you people? But who wrote this record? Who wrote the Gospel of John? Well, John, I mean, I know, God wrote through John, but all the same, John wrote it. And who wrote, let's say, the Gospel of Mark? Well, Mark. And what do we mean when we say the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to John? Well, I would say that these are transcripts of how, let's say, John or Mark or whoever, Matthew, preached the Gospel. That They said it so many times that eventually it got written down and codified, and this was the Gospel that John preached. And the great thing about the four Gospel records is that the writers are almost poking fun at themselves. But John is bringing out this point. That when he preached the gospel to people, he used to make the point that, you know what, we, me, John, and and my buddies there, Peter and James and the rest of them, we were so dumb. That woman that that the Lord met at the well, she, she was on the ball, but we were miles away. He said that he'd got food to eat we didn't know about, and there we were thinking that he meant, you know, food, as in physical food. And we were asking each other, Hey, hey, James, anyone bring him anything to eat that we didn't know about? And like Jim said, no, I don't think so, couldn't have done. You know what I'm saying? These Gospels, when John, for example, went around the place preaching the Gospel, he preached his own weakness. It's the same with Matthew. It's the same with Mark, although Mark, it seems, is Peter's Gospel, but that's another story. Um, And all the way through the Gospel of Mark, it's on and on about the weakness of Peter. And that's why I think that it's really... Mark was like, writing the gospel for Peter. But that's another story. My point is that in these evangelists' preaching or evangelizing of the gospel, they were on and on about their own weakness. And that is what really persuaded people. And so this is the challenge for us. Not only in our, if you like, formal preaching, our trying to get unbelievers to believe, but in our whole relationship with each other as believers, in our family lives, in every aspect of our lives, that we are recognizing, like that woman did, that we are sinners. That we have messed up and have been convicted of our sin and are willing desperately to accept the Lord's great salvation. And on that basis, we are appealing to, to others and on that basis God is speaking through us and on that basis we have within us bubbling up bubbling over the water the bubbling living water that gives eternal life to other people now let's go right now